0: This is Todd Rains, Managing Editor at New England Urban Church Planting. The following audio is from Urban Hope, How Gospel Churches Bring New Hope to Forgotten Neighborhoods, a conference held online in February of 2021. Visit newchurchplanting.org to learn more about our work and upcoming events. And so for those that don't know me, which is probably everybody, I'm thankful that you've got your video on. So at least I can see some faces. Uh, my name's Sharon Dickens. Um, I'm the director of 20's, uh, women's ministries at 20 Schemes. Most people call me Shaba, which is really easy. I'll refer to myself as that as a go along. And I've been asked to think about um, what discipling women in the inner city looks like. And make it interactive, which is really odd when you're not in the room and none of you are talking to me and all I see is four faces. And so we'll try our best. Um, I hope to speak slow enough so that everybody can understand my accent. But if you don't, it's okay. I'll give you a transcript and you can say, oh, that's what she was saying earlier. I'm also going to start my watch because I was told I have exactly 45 minutes and I can't go over or under time. So I'm going to try my best To be absolutely on time, but like most things, I'm not very good at the technical. Um, But I did organise in advance, so all I had to do was press a button. So where do we start? A while back when we could actually travel and see people in the same room, um, I was speaking at an event that actually had more than three people. Uh, in America, and so I'd packed my suitcase. Now, I've travelled a lot, and so I can I can pack seven days into a really 25-kilo thing pretty well and still have enough outfits to survive. Um, and I was leaving church, and on the doorstep um, was two, two ladies, Tasha and Katie, and they took one look at my suitcase and started mocking me. Apparently, my suitcase wasn't big enough because it didn't have enough shoes flying around there. But I started laughing because what we saw was Tasha heading out with Katie. So Tasha's just going on errands, and um, they're taking—she's taking Katie along for the ride, and they're—they're they're just chatting. Well, they mocked me for a good five minutes before they went. But I had to chuckle to myself because this is a such a perfect example. This little scene of discipleship in action. Like it might not seem on the surface or even be significant. But here was this old, like older mature lady, Tasha. Well, she wasn't that old, but she's definitely more mature. And Katie, a new believer, and what she was doing was just doing life on life with her. And it was really tight as in action. It was really nice as well, because for me, like 10 years before it, um, well probably more like seven, it would have been the other way around. It would have been me being the older woman, speaking into the younger woman's life, Tasha, who and um hanging out with her and just doing life and in that moment what you saw was three generations of Christians older women me because I'm ancient speaking into our younger women's life Tasha who's speaking into our younger women's life Katie so it's exciting and that's what we're going to talk about tonight practical inner discipleship say specifically inner cities but I think discipleship across the board needs to be like this so as we start to think about I'm only going to use like two verses, and it's going to be Titus 2, 3, and 5. Now, I know that, like, there's reams of books on this, and they'll have done it miles better than me. Tons of blogs, especially on the women's stuff. Um, and I'm really not uh, one for following the trends, but it's such a good such a good example of what God wants us to use as a discipleship framework it's hard for us not to avoid it. So Titus 2, 3, 3 to 5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in the behaviour, not slandering our slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may be, and not be reviled. That That's simply it. And in Titus 2, what we see is two things. Firstly, we see clearly what a godly mature women are called to do and how they're supposed to behave and secondly you see clearly godly mature women what we're supposed to do with that we're supposed to teach the, the young women to be godly women so really in this session we're going to look at just two things being a godly example and teach and disciple the younger women it's as simple as that So I was at a conference. I know it sounds like I go to conferences all the time and sometimes it does feel like that, but recently it it hasn't. But I was at a conference and this guy called Ed Stetzer, he was speaking to a group of pastors and he said this, you can't lead what you won't live, right? And I thought about this for ages because even though he primarily was talking to pastors, I think it's really relevant for what we're thinking about today. We need to be women that think if we're thinking through discipleship, we need to be women who are applying the Bible to our lives as well. So we need to live it out, just not speak it out. We see that from verses in like Romans two twenty one to 23, which says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaching the law. So basically, what comes out of our mouth, our lives need to live up to. And the thing with this is, when it comes to the Christian life, it really doesn't always happen like that. There are times when um, we are great at pulling out of the air these really big meaty verses and we chew over them in bible studies but we leave it there we never apply it to our lives we're all talk and no action and for many sadly what actually comes out of our mouth doesn't live up to our actions we're not practicing what we're preaching and Then when it comes to godly women, there's the self-imposed expectations that in some way, shape or form, we have to be this perfect Proverb 31. I mean, whoever she is, you know, this Christian superwoman, she gets up at like... 5 a.m. bakes the bread before the kids even have, like, got out of their bed, and she's prayed for, like, hours before they've even opened their eyes. She cleans her house to perfection, because, after all, cleanliness is next to godliness. That She goes to every church event that's there. She never raises her voice to her kids, buys only organic, sews her own clothes. In fact, she's sourced ethically good cotton before she's done it, never expresses an opinion that would be out, like, like... Cause a struggle and doesn't in any way, shape, or form struggle in any way. In other words, she's perfect. I call it Mary Poppins syndrome, practically perfect in every way. And so first, if we stop and we reflect in that, because we all have this inbuilt within us, it comes as a, it's like a Christian backdrop, it drives me nuts. What are the first things, I mean, the real first things that come into your head when you think of the word, what is a godly woman? I mean, it's always about how we think like what we dress is our skirts too long are we wearing the right heels I remember one of our young women she came up to me and she says to me can I wear these boots in church and I'm like what I mean there are of black boots that go up to her knees but she was worried that people would look at them and and judge her based on the height of her heels because like she would have wore them clubbing before she was saved So what is that first thing that comes into your head? And I suspect for many of us, it'd be intertwined with things that are not really what defines a godly woman, but more about what we think looks like a godly woman. So in her book, Good News for Weary Women, Elise Fitzpatrick says this. She asked this massive poignant question on Facebook of all places. She did a couple of forums as well, but she asked, what are the dumbest things people tell women they have to do in order to be godly? And there were some really dumb ones. There really was, but I picked a few of my favourites. Never disagree with another person, especially not your husband. It's not allowed. Always, always obey the law. Only read Christian books. Or books with a a strong Christian moral. Hunger Games is out then. Always, always submit, followed by, and it really is followed by some terrible definition of what submission looks like. Never drink beer or any other kind of uh, alcohol, even in moderation. Don't allow your children to be exposed to Disney characters. I love Mulan, which is a shame. Godliness means vote in a certain way. I think that's an American thing. Godliness means having to boycott anything that supports gay rights. In in the UK, that would mean that I'd never be allowed to go allowed to go in public transport. This is this one drives me nuts, and I see it all the time. Stay with an abusive husband, even if you feel threatened. I mean, I have seen people that say that being godly means that she must go home even though she's risking violence the last one when your children misbehave you should be able to quote uh, verses at them or have them recite verses to you I had one lady that made them get down and pray before she told them off I I don't know if it worked but at least Fitzpatrick goes on to say whether we are aware of it or not we all define ourselves by the rules or laws we keep Many are imposed on us, no matter where these standards originate, so even in ourselves, once a rule has taken root in our lives, it's nearly impossible to extract it, especially if it comes with some sort of promise of reward or threat of punishment, even if it's a made-up one. So if we believe that God is pleased by our rule-keeping, we will find it difficult to abandon those rules without feeling guilty and fearing that something bad will happen to us if we don't comply that's not godliness that's legalism but that's what we teach is godliness so all two women often women can get sick sucked into this lie following this imposed imagined rule book that we give for this per- 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 practically perfect in every way person um it's like we teach women that they've got to be floating along in some sort of imaginary christian bubbled cloud uh, in their perfect false image um, of what this godly looks like it's a fake impression of what the Christian walk is it's not good it's not helpful and it's not biblical so a godly life is one that um, doesn't it's not one that's without trial or struggle it's one that examples Christ and, and our dependence on him in the midst of that trial and still stands firm Trevor uh, Wack says this in a podcast. Uh, it was called Pursuing Faithfulness in an Age of Anxiety. He said this. Don't let people think struggles is an anomaly for Christians. We may not be defined by it, by the struggle, but it doesn't mean that we won't face the struggle. And so all too often, um, we teach young Christians that what a godly woman's like is someone that is surviving life without struggles. That's not what the Bible says, though. We know this in James 1, 2 to 4. Count out all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know it's the testing of your faith which produces steadfastness. It doesn't say if or none. It says when. There's a certainty, an absolute certainty. And Daniel Denarian, in his commentary on this, basically says... The inner response to those trials it reveals our heart's condition. God is showing us in the struggle what needs to be dealt with, and if we teach our women that that godliness is not to have those struggles, then how are they going to get the how the heart issues going to be revealed? So again, stop and think. When you're faced with a trial, and I mean think about when you're surrounded with your friend, what is your what's your your response to that? So what is it revealing about your heart? Who is it that you're relying on? And when you think about it and just reflect, in your midst of your struggles, what are you actually exampling? And that's like one of those mind-blowing thoughts when you take it through to the end. If you take it that step further, because we're thinking about discipleship, when the young Christians are looking at you going through a struggle, what are you showing them about who God is in the battle with you. Now, that's a meaty thought to take home and chew over. I remember when we were very first, when I was very first a Christian and I was doing some training, this guy called Dean Leach said to us, um, and it's a quote, I can't remember things, five minutes old, but I never forgot this. You might be the only Bible someone reads. So, and you're sitting there thinking, what version of God am I telling people? Like... It's just freaky. So as godly mature women, we need to show women how to deal with the trials we face and to do that well. And then to do that, we actually, and this is when we get to the discipleship, you need to scoop them up and invite them in. You need to invite them into your lives and your home, even when it's messy. So when your house looks like a tip and your kids are running riot, usually screaming and banging on something... You know, they've always lost that shoe that they had 30 seconds later and you can't find for seven hours. And when like life is basically chucking your chucking bricks at you, that's when women need you need to invite the young women into your life. They need to see how you handle that. They need to see when it's your worst day ever. Your hair's everywhere and your mascara is running when the 17th time your phone's gone off and your kids are asking you the same thing for the 25th thousandth time. They need to see how you ultimately example Christ in those moments. What they don't want to see is that fake facade because that teaches them nothing. But this is where it gets uncomfortable. We don't like it. We like to protect us and our image because we like to be thought of as fake godly. And when the idea of discipleship um, comes to us, we sometimes imagine this clean, structured, doesn't really like require much of our personal interaction and we like that if we're being honest because we don't want to make the sacrifice because messy is demanding and it's uncomfortable so the first thing we've got to be godly 14 minutes in we're all right we're doing well so the second thing and this is the longest because this is why everybody's here teach and disciple women so Titus too doesn't mess around, right? There's no much doubt that as a mature godly woman, we should be investing in younger Christians. And um, I would like pretty much go out there and say, Titus is very clear it should be women teaching women. Um the be- the best example of what a godly woman like looks like is a godly woman. So I wouldn't do discipleship of any, any guys. That's what the guys are there for. Doesn't mean I don't have something to say to them though. Um that's a side issue we need to think about as well. But reminding me that at the end, in case I go off track. So as we grow up in our faith, we need to help others along the way. So even us, as we've grown, um, for me, I've been a Christian for 30 years. But in the very beginning, I was so blessed because I had someone to ask the hard questions to. Someone who helped me unravel what the Bible was really saying. Helped me unravel my rubbish thinking someone who patiently continually pointed me to Christ it was really annoying I used to go in and um, go like this I'd go like for about 20 minutes and whinge about something and I really just wanted a cup of tea and a bar of chocolate and she would say to me what do you think Jesus is trying to teach you in this and I would be raging I'm like, I don't know what Jesus is trying to teach me. Just give me chocolate, make me feel better. But she always brought me back to Christ because that's where I needed to go. And it was one of the most helpful ways to help me navigate and learn what what God had to say about my life, but also learn what it was to be a Christian. So think back. For some of you, maybe five minutes, but for for those that are like me, it's a long time. But what are the most helpful things that people like ever did for you when you came to faith? Um, when I came to faith, I grew up in a, a, I, I came to faith in a scheme, not the one that I'm in, but another one at the other side of Edinburgh. And I did some horrendous things before I was saved. And um, when I first got saved, um, I was surrounded by what I thought were mature Christians. And they would talk absolute rubbish to me about what God was going to be like. They'd tell me things. I was terrified. Um, And I would go to my friend Marge and I would do, and she would help me unravel all the guff, which is a good Scottish word. um, Everybody, the rubbish everybody was telling me. And she'd say, now let's see what the Bible has to say about that. And it was so helpful. It's part of why... um, I think it's part of why I really love discipleship now. And the other really simple thing, I remember being in a class and the guy said, turn to First Corinthians. And I'm like, what? I'd been saved for three seconds. And this guy leaned over and he said to me, second part of the Bible, it's the big one, second second two, and he taught me these things about how to find it. And then he said, the big number's the chapter and the little one's the verse. We take for granted all those things. We need to help them navigate, even the Bible. It's like when my kids, I keep going back to my kids, they're I mean, they're ancient now. My, my son's 25 last month, and um, he's the youngest. And so I was teaching them how to do laundry, and I just didn't hand him the like the, the manual for the machine, um, a box of laundry detergent, the, la- the 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 laundry basket, and say to him, on you go, son, do the washing like no you you literally you so show them how to separate the the laundry into darks and whites Uh, which button to push on the machine how much detergent to put in or let's face it it would be coming out the windows you walk them through every part of it in fact when I was growing my kids up um I taught them all the big life lessons you teach them how to cook seven meals I did. Seven meals, seven starters, seven main courses and seven desserts. So at least every day of the week, they're eating something different that day. And then you teach them like how to do like how to learn to drive, how to deal with like relationships, how to keep themselves safe and personal safety. We do all those things. You teach your kids. I taught my kids how to be grown up, mature adults that could survive in the world without getting ripped off, beaten up. Or taken advantage of. That's what we do as parents. So why is it so different when we look at our young Christians in our congregation? We need to help them grow up to be mature adults, so that they can withstand. Well, we would use Christian words: see the sheep from the the wolf from the sheep, so they can see who's really dodgy and avoid them. Yet, when you think about it, the way that we do the push it for many believers is that we help them. Grow up by doing what? We hand them a manual, except we call it the Bible. We give them the odd instruction and let them get on with it. It's like in Christian circles, we are so used to this set format of discipleship being Sunday service, Bible study prayer meeting through the week, and that's enough. Like, we wouldn't let our kids grow up that way. Discipling Christians from an unchurched, Inner city, potentially chaotic background, is absolutely difficult. It's not a once a week thing. They hang out with. I literally spend every second I could with Tasha, um, and she hangs out with her friends all day. Like even when they part company, they're texting as they're going in the house, and then when they get in the house, they FaceTime. And you're like, what are you talking about? You've been talking to her for 12 hours. Why can't you put it right? When you've got friends like that that are in each other's lives all the time, um, hanging out, being part of, and suddenly what you take them away from that when they become Christians, and you offer them an hour and a half a week's Bible study a week. And then you wonder why they struggle. We need to walk alongside and um, meet up with them more than what it's a 24-7, living with, walking alongside sharing your life-type experience. That's what discipleship needs to be. Specifically in the inner cities, deprived areas, but I would say in any Christian community, posh or not, um, discipleship provides a framework where believers can um, walk together with Christ in one-on-one relationships, deal with and face the tough stuff together Within a context of that loving Christian community, it's the way it's supposed to be encouraging each other to keep on keeping on, speaking wisdom in every situation, continually pointing them to Christ in the discipleship relationship, we can pray, support and example maturity. We see that in James 516 says therefore confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of the righteous person is powerful and effective. We have a role. But to know what to pray for, you actually need to be spending time with them. So this kind of 24 involved in people's lives, messy type of discipleship is costly. And the sad truth is that most of us don't actually want to pay the price. We say, oh, yeah, I'd love to do discipleship. But in truth, we we really don't. It's sadly frustrating how many people want to actually get involved in discipleship. And I hear it all the time. Oh, I'd really want to do this, but I don't really have the gifts. Or I don't really know enough just now about the Lord. Um, I'm not really skilled enough. Uh, I'm not ready. Um, What if they ask me a really hard problem and I don't know the answer? Like, and the saddest excuse ever, and I hear this all the time and it makes me weep. I just don't have enough time in my schedule. I hate that. Like, if you are genuinely too busy to have one more person in your schedule, then I'd say there's something seriously wrong with your schedule. In fact, I would be asking, who are you really serving with your time? Like, because we can't all... there's, There's no way that none of us can just fit one more person in our schedule. We just maybe need to think about it a bit more inventively. So, for example... Most of us eat three meals a day, like unless you're abnormal and on some sort of fasting thing. I don't know how you can cope with that, but go for it. But three, we'll go with three meals a day, right? That's 21 meals a week. I've done my maths. 1,092 meals a year or 91. Let's go for a month. So if you just tithe, like a month in a month, that's nine meals that you can share with women and invest with them. So it doesn't mean you're actually adding else to anything else to your schedule. All you're doing is using your schedule and what you're doing a bit more inventively. I mean, you've got to eat, right? Um, I spend, so two mornings a week, I meet two different women for breakfast. At the moment, we're doing it on Zoom. We don't actually eat, um, but it's my breakfast slot. And so we do breakfast together once a week. Um, particularly this one woman I've been meeting for three years from our congregation, when we could meet together, we would actually meet in my house at breakfast time and I would invest with her. I would pray together. We'd have our quiet times. Uh, we would uh, read and sp- uh, and speak into each other's lives. Now, it's, a one, it's it's an hour. It's an hour and a half tops. Um, I would be eating and doing my quiet time and praying anyway. And so it adds nothing more time-wise to my schedule, but I had so much benefit to my life and hers for the two of us to share in each other's lives and in the beginning she constantly said oh thank you Sheba thank you Sheba but the truth was I actually got more out of it I think than she did like it was it's, it's not just a one-way street so when you start to think actually do you know what it's just one meal I could give up one meal a week then you 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 start to widen your horizons with little tweaks you can make big differences Take people shopping with you or going to the gym. My new thing at the moment is dog walking. It is like my favourite one-to-one thing. I've got to walk the dog. I'm going to walk the dog in the rain anyway, so somebody else might be getting wet and miserable at the same time as me. Um, And so the amount of people at the moment that I'm literally... um, Tomorrow I'm going out with someone, um, one of my, my girls, and we're just walking the dog together, talking as you go, doing life, discipleship and accident in action it's these ordinary moments that we can reclaim and be more intentional with that can be sometimes the most valuable in our lives and the girls used to tease me that my car was a safe place whatever you said in the car was never repeated and so it was like a little bubble and it really was bizarrely they'd get in the car we'd be going somewhere Um, And that's where they would talk. I sometimes wonder if it was because they weren't face-to-face so they felt a little bit safer telling me things. But even going to the store um, takes 15 minutes to get there. That's 15 minutes space in the car where they've got nothing else to do but talk to you. Just think these things through. So stop, think through, pause for a second and just ask yourself, is there a young Christian in your life now that you could actually be investing in. And then once you've thought about her, it's not a massive leap to get to the point of how can I actually be more intentional? Um, And we don't have to take on masses. Like in this room, there is nine women. If we all took on one more person, that's nine women who are younger than us that would get discipled that wouldn't have normally got discipled. And then you ask them to take on somebody that's younger than them to disciple someone else. And suddenly nine women has created 27 women when you've done it nine times enough. So we don't have to like all take on 15 women. You just need to do one woman really, really well. And that is that is manageable. So where do you start? right, which is the point, where Where do you start, where do you want to focus, when you get to the point where you've, you've thought who that girl is, you've been intentional, you've gone and asked her, and she surprised you and went, yeah, I'd love that, I've actually been praying about it, um, it makes me sad that I hear all the time um, young women asking older women to disciple them, and at least 10 of them have said no, that makes me sad that that happens, so when she comes in and says, will you disciple me, the word you're looking for is yes, I would love to, it'd be a privilege, so we're going to go through some really practical stuff to finish off. We're at 28 minutes, we're in time. So I want to I start where you've got to teach biblical truth. So when you get someone from an inner city, they're not going to come without complex issues. We've all got our own versions. So where do you start to challenge? Do we start with their addiction, their sexual immorality, uh, their idle comfort, the misuse of money, because the chances are they're probably in loads of debt, their purity, they might be sleeping around, maybe twice, different guys, um, Or is it the fact that they gossip at work? Where do you start? And honestly, it can feel massively daunting when you're faced with some somebody that it's got about 75 different things going on at once. You may feel absolutely out of your depth but it's not about us, it's about God. And we need to trust him and his word. Then think we forget just how amazing God's word actually is. Deepak Redju says this, and I love this quote. And if you've heard anything I've done, I've probably quoted this a million times because it's my favorite quote of all time. So it says, if you're a Christian who seeks to live faithfully and live according to God's word, you can help in most every situation, full stop, You can't necessarily fix the problem. This is me now, which is what I think we want to do. But you can find ways to help them in their struggle. A centerpiece of this discipleship culture are the members teaching one another from God's word with the goal of growing in personal holiness. You, as in all of us, as a member, are called to counsel the word of God to one another. And whether you realize it or not, you are a soldier who sits in the front lines of the battle in the discipleship culture. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about who we bring to the table. Your job is not to give them your wise counsel because you don't have any, any more than I do. But God does. You bring his wise counsel to the table. And what you teach is the whole counsel of God, his words, the holy, and it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. When you disciple. I remember I'd been discipling this girl who's married to one of our deacons and amazing now. When she was first saved, she was, uh, uh, she'd lost her kids. She was um, on drugs. She was lying to my face on a regular basis, thinking she's getting away with it. There's a whole catalogue of stuff. I remember thinking, where do you start? Do you start with addictions? And I prayed and prayed and prayed. And it was really interesting. Where God took us was her anger. And so we spoke about her anger for two years. It's bizarre. Like God in his infinite wisdom absolutely knew exactly where to prod and challenge because see the heart of that mutter. Once she dug up that rooty anger, everything else came toppling down. Like some points I was actually like, whoa, wait a wee second. You don't need to give up any more else just now. Just hang on. Because she was going so fast. But God knew exactly what area of her life he wanted to address and tackle first and we need to trust him so we need to constantly teach god's word because it's him who'll be doing the job he's the one that convicts and he taught us this when jesus was teaching his disciples he taught them about himself he taught them about his he taught them his word he taught them about his kingdom he taught taught them about what it looked like he didn't avoid the hard conversations um, or make it more palatable he had or gloss over things, which is what we have a tendency to do. He he had the hard stuff straight in the stomach, and, and we need to follow his lead and trust his word. Two life on life discipleship, right? Set the program. It's not an uh, an hourly rate thing. Jesus focused his attention on twelve people. He didn't do like an individual one to one session where like um, Peter or John on a certain day he walked with them along the way ate with them, like, lived with them, did life with them. And that's what we need to do along the way. We just need to get with people, no matter how messy it is, costly or consuming, and do life with them along the way. Teach them along the way. I've said that three times now. Um, I'm going to say it again because it's important. Um, and the reality is, I, I don't mind repetitive because it's important. Um The trouble is, when it comes to spending time with people, we always find times for the things we really want to do. And that's the challenge. So three, we're not practically perfect in every way. We need to admit that we all need help. And it's really good for new believers to see that mature Christians actually haven't got it all sorted. It's a naivety that they have. We've all had it. We need to dispel the myth that actually we didn't have it all together. An example, godly behavior in the midst of the trial. Again, I've said that as well. But they need to see how you deal with things. I don't want to really flog that horse because I flogged that horse in the beginning. But what I want to do is give a caveat. right? We want to be wise when we're speaking to new believers. You don't want to overburden them with stuff that's going to like crush them. But that's not an excuse for not sharing at all. So what we do need to do is share and um, bit with wisdom discipleship isn't detached or a professional relationship like a social worker doesn't have that clear-cut boundaries that we would like we do have to involve ourselves but our job is to build up and not do harm so yes we do need to share but not overburden we need to get to the heart of the matter now we faff around as christians all the time People struggle with what's going on, and we never quite say what needs to be said. Unless you're Scottish, we get to the point all the time, quite heartily at times. But it's like that scenario when your girlfriend is she's dating a guy that's not a Christian, and you never quite take her aside and have the conversation. You'll pray for her in public, or your friends will be worried, and you'll be talking about it behind the background. But the reality is, even when you talk to her, you do some weird stuff about being unequally yoked and still saying, look, actually, this is what the Bible says. And here's the consequences for your actions if you follow this path. We need to love them enough to get to the heart of the matter, no matter the cost to us. Usually when we don't want to challenge something, it's because of what we're afraid of. They might not be our friends. They might not like us. We don't want to be the bad guy. At the heart of all those statements is I and not them. And so we need to get past that. We need to speak the truth when we do in love, though. I can say there's 17,000 ways. And we're at 35 minutes, so we don't have the time. I genuinely feel, and I, I do believe this, if you truly are speaking to someone from a position of love, no matter how hard the conversation, you're always going to be taking it from a gentle perspective. Um, it's like your kids when you're telling them off. You have to, you, you wouldn't scream at them, but you would gently reproach and bring them back, but you'd still have the conversation. So we need to do that. We need to do it in love. Sin's hard enough for us to deal with when we are practised, But it's hard enough, it's harder for the young Christian who doesn't even recognize it. Countless times in the Bible, we're taught we're told that we need to flee sin and run to God. And the trouble is that we flee what we should be pursuing, which is God, but we pursue what we should flee. As mature Christians, if we're struggling with that, how more is the young people, the young Christians that we're dealing with struggling with that? You need to have those hard conversations in love to help them think through their actions so that they can see their their danger signs in a sense, so you can prepare them into action so that they can... What is it my mum said? Hindsight's a wonderful thing. You want to prepare them before they walk into it instead of trying to catch them afterwards when it's all kiboshed. Point six. Point them to Christ and pursue righteousness. So when we point them to Christ, constantly encouraging them to to pursue the righteousness that he set before us, what really happens is they begin to live with integrity. So actually the chances are by that point, you're challenging less and they're actually coming to you and confessing their sin. They'll say, I'm really struggling with gossip at work. Instead of you going... I've heard you gossip in church. The relationship with other changes because they're practicing things like forgiveness and patience and fighting temptation. And that actually has an impact on everything around them. And what you see is not only is that a witness to, and an encouragement to the Christian, but it's a godly witness to, to those around them. A transformed life is kind of hard to ignore when you see it with your own eyes. So need to apply and be accountable number seven we're really bad uh even when we do get to the point of keeping somebody accountable right so you've talked to them brought the bible to bear you always seem to forget this last bit what you're going to do about it right so we need to be asking what you're going to do about it and then next week you need to be saying have you done that so we need to keep them accountable and then as we finish the last thing i would say is you need to be patient like Let's not be discouraged. Change is slow, right? We need to be patient. Sin is an ongoing battle in every Christian's life. I mean, my son, when um, have you ever done that when you go to your kids? If, I'm just assuming that, like, for those that have got kids, we've all done that. How many times do I have to tell you? My son once said to me, seven. When I, and I was like, and he wasn't even being cheeky, I actually thought I was asking him a question. But the truth is, God says to us all the time, How many times did I have to tell you? And do we answer seven, seven times 77? Like the reality is, if God's asking us how many times do I need to tell you, then the chances are with the young young Christians, they too are struggling with the things. And we need to be that patient also. We need to persevere, encourage them to keep on keeping on, which is the whole point. Point them to Christ. Keep praying for them. Keep them in the game. My pastor, Mez, who spoke earlier, he has this thing. You need to, he talks about us because we always fall. He talks about how quickly you recover. I mean, you fall flat on your face. You need to get back up and in the game straight away. We need to encourage them to, to fight well, to persevere in the faith and keep on keeping on. I've been doing a discipleship for over a decade now with like some of the really like struggling, usually myself as well, Christians. And the, the thing is, it's it's amazing. It's a privilege, but it's also heartbreaking. They walk away and um, we need accountability as much as everybody else. It's It's absolutely hard to continually, constantly point someone to Christ when you see them walking over a cliff but you need to keep on keeping on and being faithful, loving them enough to chase them when they need chase, telling them the truth they don't need to hear and keep pointing them along the way. 40 minutes, five minutes to go. I want to finish with this one verse. Philippians 1.6 says this, that we as Christians being confident of this, that he who begun a good work in you will carry out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's exactly the same for every person that we will be discipling. God's doing the work. It's his wisdom that's bringing in. It's the Holy Spirit that's transforming. We need to just keep pointing them to Christ. We are a signpost. We just need to do our job. That would be me finished. Is there any questions? I'm, again, we've got three minutes, I think yeah probably about two. two. We've got time for one quick question then. Is there any of the chats? No time for quick questions. Anybody wave at me? This is like the easiest group ever. And um, I have some case studies that if I was doing a normal session, I'd give you a case study to walk through. If you want some of our stuff, then sign up to women at 20 schemes. Thank you.